out there and bust them crackings. I almost feel sorry for them serpents we've been tracking. Battle stations, boys. Hi there, and welcome to the first episode of The Kraken Busters, a walk through the history of the U.S. sea monster conflict of the 1940s and 1950s. This is episode one, The Missing Ships, 1944 through 1945. I'm Keith Pilly. As we get started, I wanted to take a minute to introduce myself. I'm a historian and a writer, and like a lot of Americans, I've been fascinated by the sea monster conflict since I was a little kid. In fact, I can remember the incident that first got me hooked. In the 80s, my parents did a terrible job of keeping age-inappropriate material away from me, and I have this vivid memory of reading through one of their Time Life books about the sea monster conflict. And I remember this horrible fascination with a really graphic photograph. You've probably seen it. It's a pretty famous one of the kelp man just stomping on and totally crushing a marine at the uh, Second Battle of Pearl Harbor. It's, it's a gross picture, but it's a moving one, and it's the kind of thing that you know, gets into your head, especially if you're a little kid and, you know, just planted the seed. So anyway, as I work my way through the history of the conflict, I am going to try to cover a lot of stuff from the ground up. And this might mean explaining some things that sea creature buffs already know pretty well, like who Blackjack Kraken was, or why Harry Truman ordered atomic bombs to be dropped on San Francisco and Oakland. Um, so sorry if you're hearing this stuff again, but I think it's a good idea to be thorough. There's a lot of bad information and mythology out there floating around as fact, you know, especially after just decades of all those movies and TV shows from after the war. Um, you know, or I mean, it, it's still coming. There was that just ridiculous Mark Wahlberg movie from not too far back that was just, you couldn't believe any of it. Okay, enough of that. We are here to actually talk about the sea monster conflict, so let's get rolling. It's not actually clear when the sea monster conflict started. We know that it overlapped with the last few years of World War II in the Pacific, so that means 1944-1945, but that overlap makes the start tough to pin down. Ships disappear at sea during normal times, and even more so during navally-oriented wars. So the truth is that we don't know for sure, and we never will. But one very likely candidate for an early casualty of the sea monster conflict is Captain Anne Leamy of Depot Bay, Oregon, and the rest of the crew of her fishing boat, the Starlight. Uh, by the fall of 1944, Leamy was known as the unsinkable woman of Depot Bay. She'd learned the deep sea fishing trade at the side of her father, plying the waters off of Oregon through the first few decades of the 20th century. In 1925, old man Leamy had retired and Anne took over the starlight. Through the 20s and 30s, she developed a reputation as being an absolute master sailor. In 1929, Starlight's weary old motor had caught fire at sea, and Leamy and her crew fought the blaze and then conned the ship with makeshift sails for eight days until the Coast Guard found them and rescued them. In October 1934, a just monster storm blew out of the Pacific, surprising the entire fishing fleet with wind gusts that surpassed 90 miles an hour. 
and a combination of wind and wave that proved deadly for over 20 boats and small ships. Starlight was out on a deep water halibut run when the storm blew in, and a startled Leamy quickly found out that conditions were too rough to try to make a run for shore when the only way to keep the 30-foot waves from capsizing her ship was to point Starlight's bow straight into them. So, standing at the ship's wheel for 36 hours straight, living on nothing but coffee and cigarettes, she was able to keep the ship afloat. And when the much-battered Starlight steamed back into Depot Bay on October 23rd, actual cheers went up from the fishing boats, and the, uh, the legend of the unsinkable Ann Leamy was further cemented. Then there was another lesser storm in 1938 that just added to this. So, with all of that in the background, when Leamy failed to come back after heading out on September 19, 1944, other Depot Bay fishing captains were concerned at first, but only mildly. Anne was unsinkable, after all. Maybe she'd had engine trouble. Maybe she'd decided to go out further than usual, and she'd be back tomorrow. There was widespread agreement to keep an eye out for her when everyone went out, and the other captains went on with their lives. Boats went missing all the time, and almost always turned up especially Ann Leamy's. As each day passed without a return, though, concern mounted. Surely someone would see something soon, but no one ever did. Eventually, on September 25th, Captain Robert Dolezalek contacted the Coast Guard to formally report that Starlight was missing. The Coast Guard conducted a search and found nothing. Nervous talk circulated on the Oregon coast that maybe Leamy had run into a Japanese submarine, but the better informed shut down such talk. Fishing boats almost always came back, but sometimes they didn't, and that had been part of fishing for as long as men had been sailing. We will never know for sure what happened to Anne Leamy in Starlight, but she represents the first officially logged lost ship and a rash of them in the U.S. Pacific Northwest in the fall of 1944. Now, like a lot of long-term disasters, the U.S. Sea Monster Crisis, it begins in a murky haze, a continuum without a firm, sharp starting point. By the fall of 1944, the United States had been deeply enmeshed in the Second World War for three years. It'd be a massive understatement to say that the war's effects were deeply felt in everyone's life, through rationing, through absent family members, through news reports of terrible things, through a cultural feeling of shared purpose. But actual intrusion of the war's physicality on American soil, even on the West Coast, was minimal. If all of Europe was either under occupation, on fire, or freshly liberated and being rebuilt, for Americans the war was something that happened somewhere else, with only second-order effects, however tragic or shocking, making their way home. By 1944, although the war still raged and terrible things continued to happen, a strong sense had settled in throughout the country that the outcome was inevitable at this point. In Europe, Allied forces had broken out of their Normandy beachheads and were making their way across France in the west, while the Red Army closed in on German territory relentlessly from the east. In the Pacific, after the shock of Pearl Harbor and the fall of the Philippines and American outposts like Wake Island, American forces had rebound and were steadily pushing their way back towards Japan. In the fall of 1944, anticipation abounded about the potential liberation of the Philippines, a major step towards ending the war. 
Things were looking up for the Allies on all fronts, but it was also clear that there was still plenty of misery to go. And so, it was in the midst of this strange mix of razor-keen suffering at the fronts and dull impatience for the end at home. In the mix of this, some elements of life continued as ever. The war transformed many areas of life on the home front, but things like food production were as essential in wartime as they were in peacetime, and the commercial fisheries of the Pacific Northwest were no exception. The boats went out and came in as before, with additional guidance from the Coast Guard to report anything unusual that they encountered, despite the fact that the combat zone was thousands of miles to the west, paranoia about Japanese incursions onto the west coast never entirely went away. Anyway, the boats, they went out and they usually came in as before, and then Starlight didn't. Two weeks after Starlight's disappearance, Joe Collins's Acadia out of Grays Harbor, Washington, also failed to come back in. As word spread through the fishing community, tensions rose markedly. One boat disappearing, well, that was unfortunate, but normal. Two, within a few weeks? Happened occasionally, but it started to feel like something was up. And then a third boat, Sam Rustan's Appaloosa, out of Florence, Oregon, raised eyebrows even further. Three boats lost this close together was unheard of, and there was a war on. What was going on? By early November 1944, concern had raised to the point of a formal, if limited, Coast Guard inquiry. Investigators spoke to people who were familiar with the operations of the missing boats and learned nothing conclusive. Additional searches at sea were conducted, uncovering nothing but small bits of wreckage deemed to be likely, but not, with, you know, not without any doubt, to be flotsam from the Acadia. As the Coast Guard inquiry was underway, three additional vessels disappeared, two more fishing boats, and one small coastal cargo ship en route to Seattle. At some point in the late fall of 1944, officials within the Coast Guard determined the matter to be beyond the scope of their investigation and referred the matter to the Office of Naval Intelligence, or ONI. ONI was keen to assume responsibility. Although Japanese involvement in the disappearances had at first been deemed unlikely, the steady increase in incidents and continued lack of any sort of explanation led many within the agency to reevaluate this possibility. Documents show that the initial ONI hypothesis was that the disappearances were the result of Japanese midget submarines operating off the Pacific Northwest. Although, as always, no solid evidence supporting this hypothesis was forthcoming. Like the Coast Guard before them, ONI was careful to keep their investigation low profile for fear of inciting public hysteria. Both Coast Guard and ONI interviews with potential witnesses included stern warnings about not gossiping about the disappearances for fear of hurting war morale. Press inquiries were similarly stonewalled with on-the-record statements that there was no cause for concern, and then reporters received stern off-the-record warnings that pursuit of this story would be looked at as potentially hazardous to the war effort, with dire consequences for reporters and their publications. Although investigators at ONI were troubled with their lack of progress in determining what was causing the disappearances, and particularly in uncovering the Japanese action that they feared was responsible, the office was at least relieved that the discussion of the missing vessels remained limited to the seafaring community. 
The attention of the general public was held by the steadily growing flood of positive war news as Allied troops continued to close in on German territory in Europe and deliberate the Philippines and the Pacific. Commander Franklin Weiss was one of the chief ONI investigators in the fall of 1944, tracking down the rash of missing boats. In 1963, after the records for the period had been partially declassified, he spoke with the Federal Conflict Documentation Project, or FCDP, which was the federal program established by President Nixon to gather historical evidence about the sea creature conflict. Weiss's testimony to the FCDP is revealing, and it really describes this early period of the crisis pretty well. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to quote it at length here. Quote, November, December 1944. That was the weirdest time of my life. Boats kept disappearing, and for the life of us, we couldn't get answers. We'd talk to other boat operators and just get nothing. The boats that went missing were just like any other boats, nothing unusual with the maintenance, nothing crazy about the skippers, just people. We'd run down every crazy lead we could think of. For about a week, we were convinced there was a Japanese sabotage ring working out of Seattle, sending teams down the coast to sabotage fishing boats as they went out. That theory crashed into two different rocks. One, we could never find any hard evidence. And two, why the hell would they bother doing that? Those are the same problems we ran into with the midget subs theory. That one had a little bit more staying power, just because there actually had been Japanese midget subs operating in the East Pacific earlier in the war, although none for years after their Navy's area of operation had been beaten back. And not finding evidence was a little more believable with a midget sub, although we expected that if there was something to see, our increased air searches would have seen it. And they hadn't. We came into the office every day desperate to figure out what was going on. We were positive it was the Japanese, one way or another. We just couldn't figure out how or why. Why would they put so much effort into getting rid of a few small-scale fishing operators and some minor shipping assets? Was this a prelude to something bigger? We felt like we were in a race against time, and every new disappearance raised the stakes in a contest that we were desperate to both somehow win and somehow keep secret. And looking back, I'm amazed at how much effort we put into chasing our own tails around in circles for six weeks. Let me tell you this. We had a flood of information coming into our office since the war effort already meant that all kinds of stuff in life was being tracked and recorded in ways that it usually wasn't. We had more information coming in than we could possibly absorb, and most of it washed over us. Much, much later, looking back, I stumbled across one report that certainly would have come into us at the time, which I absolutely guarantee we glanced at and dismissed because it didn't seem to have anything to do with Japanese sabotage or midget subs or secret goddamned air bases on little islands or whatever. I saw an economic report that included fishery production for Washington and Oregon for the past two months, and it was down 12% over the same period the year before. Now, like I said, if we even saw that at the time, we just shrugged it off. Of course it's down, the boats are disappearing. But looking back, there's no way that even a bunch of missing boats would have brought down the numbers that much. It had to be something bigger. Something was eating the fish. But that possibility never even started to occur to us at the time, and we kept on chasing our tails." End quote. 
The, uh, the mysterious crisis in the Pacific Northwest persisted through November of 1944 and into early December, with ship losses going down slightly as shipping itself began to quiet down for the winter. This period of calm tension ended abruptly on the morning of December 12, 1944, when it was discovered that the Yakima Head Lighthouse had been all but destroyed the night before. That morning, the Coast Guard office in nearby Newport tried repeatedly to reach the lighthouse by telephone for routine check-in calls, only to find out that the calls wouldn't go through. A fierce storm had passed through the evening before, so the natural assumption was that the phone lines had been knocked out. George Raft, an orderly in the office, was dispatched to check in by car. Raft arrived to find the lighthouse tower in rubble, with only the lower third still standing, and significant, bordering on catastrophic damage to the seaward side of several outbuildings. Raft sped back to Newport Station to breathlessly report that there had been an attack on Yakin Ahead. A 12-year Coast Guard veteran, Raft was positive that the damage was more severe than could possibly have been caused by any storm. The previous night's weather had been rough, but certainly not catastrophic enough to level a lighthouse tower. Instead, Raft said, it was clear to him that the lighthouse facility had either been dynamited by saboteurs or shelled from the sea. A team of officers from Newport sped immediately to the lighthouse for verification and further investigation, and an urgent call was placed to ONI. Whatever was going on, it had clearly escalated. The Coast Guard evaluation team initially agreed with Raft's assessment that the lighthouse had been destroyed by blasting or shelling. The scale of the destruction was clearly beyond the capacity of even the worst weather. The site was cordoned off to the general public, first by local police and then by a squad of National Guard soldiers under strict orders not to discuss anything they saw. When ONI investigators arrived hours later, they seconded the assessment that this was not conceivably the result of weather. But their experts were less sure about the dynamite or shelling theories. Either of those explanations would have left burn marks and residue, none of which was present. And the pattern of damage was entirely incompatible with the use of high explosives, the analysts concluded. The structures looked like they had been battered and grappled, not exploded. A debate began immediately about what to tell the public. First among the team on site at the wreckage of the Yakima Head Lighthouse, then within ONI leadership, and then within the Navy, and finally reaching the White House. At the express order of Chief of Naval Operations Admiral Ernest King, and probably the White House, although the paper trail doesn't extend that far, ONI drafted a statement to be issued through the Coast Guard, blandly stating that the Yakima Head Lighthouse had been disabled by a combination of bad weather and structural weaknesses from poor construction, and that the site would remain closed for the near term because the ruins were unsafe. The involvement of Admiral King in the White House appears to have heightened the pressure on ONI to explain the damage to the lighthouse and the disappearances of the ships. Clearly, something was afoot, and if a public panic had been so far held off by good war news, that was just a matter of luck that couldn't be counted on to last indefinitely. But answers remained as elusive as ever. Yakima Head remained cordoned off as 1944 moved into 1945, and slowly throughout Oregon and Washington, the muttering started to spread. Something was up, and the Coast Guard and Navy were clearly not being forthcoming about it. 
Through the winter and early spring of 1945, the situation persisted, with ships disappearing at a slow but steady rate and ONI's investigation continuing to fail to find any indication of the Japanese involvement that, in view of the entire organization, simply had to be there. Through the spring, the range of disappearances expanded steadily southward, with the murmuring among the seafaring communities expanding with it. By April 1945, boats from as far south as Santa Barbara had disappeared, but the scant newspaper coverage was overshadowed by war news. This pattern reached its height in early May. On May 6, 1945, an enormous octopus was sighted several times in the Bahia de Banderas, outside of Puerto Vallarta, Mexico. Although the creature's entire body was never fully visible at once, the portions that could be seen indicated that its central body might be 70 feet in diameter, or larger. A few blurry and indistinct photographs were even taken, including one showing several gigantic tentacles rising up out of the water. Newspapers in Puerto Vallarta went wild with the story, but it gained little traction in the United States, being banished to back pages by dramatic news of the end of the war in Europe. If the American coverage had little cultural currency, it did have two long-term impacts. American news editors, not fluent in Spanish, used El Pulpo, which is Spanish for the octopus, as the creature was referred to in the Mexican news stories, as a proper name for the creature. And Commander Franklin Weiss of ONI proposed a startling new theory for what might be causing the ship disappearances. Meanwhile, the war in the Pacific raged on. That's it for this episode. Thank you very much for listening. I would ask you to please join me next week as the conflict ramps up and the USS Dahlgren engages with the infamous Black Jack Kraken. In the meantime, if you have enjoyed this show and you know anyone who is interested in sea monsters or naval history or, of course, the U.S. sea monster conflict, um, please let them know about the show. You know, I want to spread the truth as widely as possible and word of mouth from trusted sources is the best way to do that. Thanks, have a good day. Them squids they didn't think about Just who they was attacking Wake her, boys Get out there and bust them crackings I almost feel sorry for them serpents we've been tracking Battle stations, boys Get out there and bust them crackings Out, boys, get out there and bust them crackings. Dee -dee.